just a couple ideas that that come from secular humanism. Now, in 1933, there was actually a manifesto written called the Humanist Manifesto. All right? And some of the great minds in that day that you would be familiar with that are secular humanists, one would be Karl Marx, which we know is uh, the proponent of socialism and Marxism um, that's become very prevalent in our world today. Uh, Karl Marx was a secular humanist, um, as well as uh, B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner is well known in the psychology realm. He was a behavior modificationist, I guess you could say, Adam. And um, again, uh, he, he operated and he practiced psychology from a secular humanist standpoint. And one that might shock you more than any is a man named John Dewey. John Dewey. And if you're unfamiliar with John Dewey, John Dewey, John Dewey is the father of, of a, a public education in our, in our uh, nation. And so if we think back and trace back to public education, John Dewey is called the father of public institutionalized education. Now, why is that important? Well, because when you understand these concepts that I want us to see this afternoon, you're going to see why these people taught the way that they did and the underpinning foundational beliefs that they... um, they lived by. So here's, I I just have seven of the 15 principles of the humanist manifesto that I think you can resonate with and you can see clearly evidence of this in our culture today. Number one, they they espouse or teach that man is self-existing. They deny any sense of a creator and therefore we exist on our own. We only need ourselves We don't need anything else from any outside force. We as human beings have risen and fallen on our own uh, merit and our own strength. Therefore, we exist in ourselves and we don't need a creator. And so they would deny the existence of any creator. They also would say, number two, that man comes from nature. So we are part of the evolutionary process. And as humans, we have been the champion of that process. We dominate in this world in evolutionary thought because we have overcome and dominated all other things that exist in nature. We rule and we reign, not because God has placed us there, but because we have, by our own strength, overcome and been the victor in the evolutionary process. Of course, the evolutionary process also denies the thought process of God being our creator and sovereign Lord. Number three, they would say that man is just matter. That we are literally composed of just cells and organs and matter that has life and dies, and when it dies, it's over. Therefore, they would deny any uh, soul or spirit. They would deny any life after death. This is a huge uh, argument in the abortion um, world today because if the, <clears throat> the body is just a clump of cells and matter, then it has no intrinsic value in itself, right? But if God created it and said, I, I created you and formed you in your mother's womb before I even made you, I knew you, 
that's very anti to a secular humanist worldview. Number four, they reject supernatural events. They would reject things like the miracles of of Christ, the deity of Christ, the even existence of um, a, a spiritual salvation that's performed by a divine being. They would reject those things because they're outside of nature. That's why they're called super nature or supernatural. Anything outside of the components of science and nature would be rejected by secular humanists. Number five, man's fulfillment is the greatest purpose for man. Or as we would say in the catechisms, the chief end of man is the glory of God. The secular humanist would say the chief end of man is man. The glory of man. The boasting and the, 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 the reigning and the dominion of man, the celebration of man. They would say the chief, of man, the chief end of man is terrestrial, not celestial. Number six, <clears throat> they would say that joy and satisfaction in life rests upon the creativity and human achievement of man alone. That means your greatest satisfaction in this world is not given to you by somebody outside of you, some, something greater than yourself. It's what you achieve. It's what you gain by your own merit and your own strength. And so it's up to the human will and the determination and creativity in this world to find joy and satisfaction in this life. Because guess what? After this life, there's nothing else. So you might as well enjoy it while it's here. And finally, they would say science has proven no existence of moral values that are passed down from any supernatural means. Therefore, morality is relative throughout history and culture. And we see that obviously every day. There's no absolute morality. There's no absolute truth. They would deny anything that God has declared for humanity because they deny God. Therefore, morality is whatever you want it to be. And you have seen the decay of that and the evidence of that in our world today. Now, these all, these seven are not surprises to us but when you think about them as, a, as building blocks of an ideology that, that we're living in, that we're seeing uh, in infiltrating our culture and our world, then you have to be alarmed in understanding the framework in which people are trying to speak and teach and guide and instruct us as human beings. And they are anti-God, anti-Gospel ways. I couldn't help but reading these things, thinking about our young people here today. I mean, we are overwhelmed. Students, you are overwhelmed in a culture that is about your human achievement. You get an award for graduating every year from public school. It's ridiculous. It's like we are just trying to continue to pat you on the back and tell you that, that, that everything that you put your mind to, you can accomplish by your own strength and power. And that sounds all wonderful and touchy-feely, but what it does is it creates an anti-God dependence on Him. 
It's a denial of His existence. It's a denial of the need for Him. He's basically saying, you can do everything you put your mind to in your own strength and power. And students, that is a subtle way for Satan to tempt you to deny God and your need for Him. And so secular humanism is permeating our culture. It's getting worse and worse in gender ideology, in sexual ethics, and all the things that we are seeing in our world today. And you need to understand, you need to understand that this is the platform in which politics and morality and and the world is operating. And as Christians, we have to stand firm. And it starts with the words from Paul in our passage today. In verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, Paul is saying the warning church is that you and I fall prey of deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are wise in this age. And this is, the, this is the deception of secular humanism. The deception of sin is that we don't need anything other than ourselves. And if you think back to where that originates, it originates in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. Because only God is a transcendent being. Only He is outside and without need of anything. And if we as human beings want to be like God, then that obviously would be the foundation in which we try to live. Oh, I don't need anybody anyway. And if you're anything like me, there is that shadow of I don't need anybody's help in each one of us. Right? Right? We get that way when we get sick or when we, you know, are tired and, we're, and we just want to take control of things and, that aren't happening the way that we want them to. I don't need anybody's help. I can do it myself. Paul is saying that we are in a dangerous situation as Christians when we allow such self-deception to permeate our minds thinking that we are strong and wise in this age. In His words to us, let us become fools that we might become wise. And what does that mean? Well, simply I would say that it means that we should humble ourselves before Christ. We should humble ourselves. We should not be deceived by the sinful tendencies within us. He is warning us to avoid being deceived. He says, and you are deceiving yourself when you begin to believe that you are wise and that you are strong and that you don't need anybody's help. One of the things that are blaringly obvious in a different culture from the West is individualism. In Latin American countries even, Eastern countries and communities, you have a communal family organism that operates. They love each other. They serve each other. They live together 
They make decisions as a group and not as individuals. But when you come to the West, everything is individualistic. Everything is about me. It's about what I want to do. It's about my decisions. It's about my goals and purposes in life. Not my decisions that affect everybody else, but just what am I choosing to do? But when you read the New Testament church, that's not just a cultural stamp on the New Testament church that they were a communal people. That is the blueprint of the church for the whole world. That we are called to be people who depend on Christ and depend on one another. And the self-deception is that you and I are wise in our own eyes. We are strong in our own strength. We don't need anybody's help. And Satan's like, yeah, keep believing that. Because that's the way the church is destroyed. When we don't feel like we need the strength of the Lord and the help of each other. And this has been Paul's argument since chapter 1. And why was he arguing this? Because the self-deception in the Corinthian church was that they were beginning to worship wisdom in the culture thinking that they were wise in themselves, thinking that they had chosen these leaders like Paul and Apollos, who were these great speakers, and that they, and it began, began to bring faction and division in the church. And so for four chapters, he, Paul is going to make this argument that this is the problem in the church. Divisions are happening because you are boasting in your own strength, in your own wisdom, And therefore, you are dividing the church because of your arrogance. And so Paul's warning is, don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. And and how is it then that we are to live? We are called then, Paul says, let them become a fool. What does it mean to be foolish? Well, in Paul's wordage, what he means is become a fool in the eyes of of the world. That means shun the very ideologies that the world is pushing and plotting in and and, and infiltrating into your life. If you turn away from those ideologies and depend upon Christ and His strength in your life, you will look like a fool to the world. We face this uh, as the parents of teenagers. When we take stands as Christian parents for things that the world has now directly opposed, we look like fools in the eyes of the world. And that's okay with us. When you take stands for the the, the truth of God's Word, you are called all kinds of names which falls under the category of a fool in the eyes of the world. And Paul is saying, become one of those people. Pursue foolishness in the eyes of the world when you stand upon the grace that Christ has given you. You must become a fool in the eyes of the world. And when you become a fool, Paul says, that's when you become wise. So I want to take a couple minutes and I want us to think about what is it that that makes us foolish, how are we to, uh, to truly be humbled before Christ? And the best way that we can do this 
is to, as we study the Bible, dwell upon the doctrines of God because the very doctrines of God are the things that reveal our sinfulness. They reveal our, our, our frailty, our depravity, and therefore those things about God humble us as man. So hold your place in 1 Corinthians. Go to the very famous Isaiah chapter 6. And let's be reminded and humbled by the very doctrines of God this morning. Isaiah 6, I would say, has at least four doctrines about God that are humbling to us. And they need to be uh, afresh in our minds as we think about our relationship in this world. Isaiah is the prophet to Israel, and he has been given this vision. I'll read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Four things that Isaiah teaches us about the doctrines of God that humble us before His power and strength. Number one is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. If we are going to fight secular humanistic ideas, we need to acknowledge that God is sitting upon His throne, ruling and reigning throughout all time and history, before time began, after time ends, and eternity continues, the Lord reigns. In Isaiah's vision, he sees the Lord depicted chiefly as sovereign, sitting upon the throne in the temple. Folks, there's not even a throne in the temple in Isaiah's day. The temple had no throne. So we know that Isaiah is not having a vision of the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple in Jerusalem is a good blueprint of Isaiah's vision. One, it was a massive temple. But there in his vision, he sees the Lord sitting on the throne, the throne representing God's complete rule and reign over all things, over your life, over your decision, over your futures, over your spouses and your college choices and and how long you might live on this earth and, and what sufferings you might face and how you might die or when you will die. All these things are in God's complete and total sovereign control. Therefore, people, friends, you are not in control. There cannot be and there is never room for two sovereigns in a kingdom. 
Adam and Eve chose or tried to sit on their own thrones in rebellion, and God revealed to them His complete and total authority over them by casting them out of the beautiful place that God had placed them in Eden. Showing them that although you're going to rebel against me and want to be God, let me remind you, you are not God. He is sovereign. It's the same image of the Lord sitting upon the throne that we see in the book of Revelation where the Lord Jesus is ruling over all, making all things new in Revelation chapter 20. So we see this future look of the throne where God will reside and dwell and rule and reign and it teaches us about His absolute authority over all things. Secondly, the doctrine of the power of God. You could call it His omnipotence. But in this this uh, passage in Isaiah chapter 6, we're reminded of the great power of God, His strength that is revealed. That He is strong and mighty in this vision. And His power is manifested in the greatness of His robe that's filling the temple. If the, the temple in Jerusalem is the blueprint of Isaiah's dream and his vision, then you can imagine one being, God, wearing a, a robe, and literally the train of God's robe is filling the entire temple, which covered an entire mountain in Jerusalem. Not the Holy of Holies, like this small little room, but the entire temple signifying His power and His majesty. When we think about the idea of how big is God, He speaks to us in these anthropomorphic ways to help us understand as human beings His greatness. But God is beyond greatness. He can't be measured by our understanding of greatness. There is no measuring stick that that is able to measure God's size or magnitude. We can't even ask the question, how big is God? Because what could really measure His greatness? Who's going to do that? You? Me? No, absolutely not. God is transcended beyond those limits of even being measured. And so the image of His robe is just to help us understand in the same way that when Jesus Christ is born as a babe in the manger and the, the skies are filled with angels, we, we can't imagine that, that angels filled the skies all the way around the earth. If you're a flat earth theorist, that means that it's just you know from one edge to the other. Right? But the angels filling the skies were reminding us of the magnitude of the glory of of Christ being born into the world so that we might comprehend with our finite minds how how beautiful and majestic this little baby was. And how important it was, even though angels didn't fill the sky from east to west in a complete circle around the earth. But in this passage in Isaiah 6, we're reminded that in God's power and in His omnipotence, He casts a large shadow on how finite human beings are in our own strength. And be aware, church, when you read the news and you get on Twitter and you see human achievement and human 
strength being manifested and being heralded as doing these great things, but the truth and the reality is human strength is always limited. Science is always limited. Science will never be able to do what God does. Right now in our culture, we have scientists who are trying to change men into women and women into men, and it's failing. And these people are in pain, and they're in misery. We're literally trying to create body parts and organs that don't function and don't work because we're human beings, and we fail at the things that God does alone by Himself. We can't do them. And we can't do them because we're not God. And we don't have the power. And by the way, when God creates things, He doesn't need to take tissue out of one place to make it into something else. He creates something out of nothing. Because of His power. And because of His power, He doesn't need us. He creates life and He sustains life. So we as human beings are so desperately clinging to Him, even when we're shaking our fists at Him, telling Him that we don't need Him at all. So we have the sovereignty of God. We have the power of God. Number three, we have the holiness of God. You could really say that just as much of chapter 6 verses 1 through 6 is about the power of God being manifested. It's specifically the power of God being manifested in the holiness of God. The imagery of of Isaiah 6 shows us uh, Old Testament imagery of God's power connected to His holiness. For example, the the mountain shaking and filling with the house filling with smoke. These are images and, and, and imagery in the Old Testament of God's power in relationship to His holiness. When the foundations of the threshold of the temple shake at the voice of Him who is called and the house is filled with smoke... That, is, that takes us back to the Mount Sinai when God is meeting with Moses. And the whole mountain is covered in smoke. And there's lightning flashes. And what's the point of all that? Because God told Israel, don't touch the mountain because I am separate from you. And if you come and even touch the mountain, my holiness will strike you down dead because there's a separation between the holiness and the perfections of God and the frailty and the depravity of man's sinfulness. And all this is, in Isaiah's vision, is to conjure up this idea of the separateness of God and His holiness. The angels are crying out, holy, 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 repeating that word three times. People have defined God's holiness as His otherness. Or His separateness. He is separated from us. He is not like us. And we are not like Him. Even though we are created in His image, we are not God. And our sinfulness does not allow us to dwell in His presence. Because of His moral perfection, He is unapproachable by man because of our sin and how it conflicts with His perfect purity. And so the imminence of God's glory is radiating across the globe as these angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now that's interesting. The whole earth is full of the glory and the recognition of the holiness of God. Well, why in the world does the earth not see it? 
Why does the earth not understand it? Why do we fail to see the beautiful, grand, majestic holiness of God that covers this earth? Well, Paul tells us that in chapter 2. Because the natural man does not understand the things of God. We are walking around in the presence of God's holiness and we are blinded to it. It's like going to the Grand Canyon and looking at one rock and going, man, this is amazing. We're completely blinded to it in our own sinfulness. Until God awakens our eyes and all of a sudden this little rock in our hand means absolutely nothing when the backdrop of the Grand Canyon stands behind it. The holiness of God is present in all of His creation. And Isaiah sees this image and he's reminded in this moment that he is not like God. And so what does this lead Isaiah to do? It leads him to lament. God opens his eyes to see this grand vision of who God is. And and it leads Isaiah to see the holiness of God and reflect upon in his own life his failure. And so Isaiah laments before God in this vision because of his own sin as it's been revealed to him. And it humbles him. He says that he's, he says, woe is me. That means I am cursed. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. We don't even know what Isaiah means by that. We don't even understand the, 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 the definition in, in his own mind of what he means by a man of unclean lips, but he's confessing it. It's best to understand it as the, 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 the wickedness of Israel that Isaiah has talked about up until chapter 6. Their own false worship, their failure to truly follow the Lord, to go after idols. And we oftentimes as Christians look at their lives and go shame on them as if we don't follow after idols in the same way. But when we come into contact with an understanding of the holiness of God in all of our lives, we begin to see idols exposed in us as well. Things that we worship, devote our time to above and beyond our love for Christ. And so it leads us to repentance. Hopefully, by God's grace and power, His holiness shows us our need for Him. It humbles us as we encounter the reality of His sovereignty and His power and His holiness. And lastly, His grace. Verses 6 and 7, one of the angels flies to Isaiah taking a burning coal with tongs from the altar and he touches his mouth with a purifying fire, touching the lips of Isaiah, touching the very thing that Isaiah was confessing as sin before God. And he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. We cannot forget That the humbling effects of the doctrines of God lead us to the point in which we understand God's grace. That God's forgiving, purifying, atoning love for people is demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ represented in Isaiah 6, 6 and 7. That that atonement, that that purification that is provided by God for Isaiah is represented in the finished work of Jesus Christ who gave His life as a ransom for many so that we might be purified. 
so that we might be clean, so that we might be able to approach a holy God and have relationship with Him. Church, this is the grace of God. This is the love of God. And all these things we don't deserve to understand, we don't deserve to receive, and therefore they humble us. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Thinking back then to Paul's message, Paul says in chapter 1 that what God chose that was foolish in the world, He does so to shame the wise. That God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And that's boasting in themselves. Deceiving themselves. Thinking that they are wise when they're really truly fools. And so back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul commands the church in Corinth as he commands us to become foolish, sitting under the weight of the great doctrine of God. We become foolish so that we might become wise in Him. Verse 19, for he says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And then he quotes two passages from the Old Testament, Job chapter 5. Job chapter 5 and Psalm 94. And these are basically supporting texts that Paul is using to to solidify the fact that God will always bring to nothing the plans and the arrogance of human beings who do not trust in Him. In Isaiah chapter 5, he's receiving wisdom from Eliphaz, his friend, And Eliphaz is giving Job this great dose of wisdom from God. Job is complaining about the bad things that have happened to him. And this is what Job's friend Eliphaz says in context. He says, as for me, I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. This is the grace of God. That He brings to nothing the arrogant, those depending upon themselves, resting in their own human merit and achievement. But He raises up even men like Job. He raises them up, even through suffering and difficulty, preserving them and keeping them by His sovereign power and grace. Why? So that He would receive glory. So that whatever you achieve, God receives the glory. Whatever you accomplish, whatever you have, it already belongs to God. God receives the glory. Therefore, we should then boast in Christ as the source of all things. First, we should be humbled before Christ 
because of who we are in relationship to God. And secondly, we should boast in Christ as the source of all things. This is what he says. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. What's the, that's the negative. Do not boast in men. The positive, boast in Christ. That's his, that's his whole argument. If you start from the back and work your way up, in verse 23 he says, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God, therefore don't boast in men because all things are yours in Christ. That's that whole section. But you know I'm going to preach longer than that. Boasting in Christ as the source of all things. Paul wants us to understand that there's no reason for division. There's no reason for contention. Because if you belong to Christ's church, then you own all things in Him. There's no reason to fight over leadership or wisdom, or things that God has given because they already belong to you because you belong to Jesus. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 22, reminding us of the greatness of God's power and the grace and the gifts that He blesses us. Paul says to the Ephesian church, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. So here's what you need to understand. Jesus owns all things. It's been given to Him by the Father. He rules and reigns as Lord. That's why He's called King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the King of all kings in this world. He is the Lord of all lords. He has been given all things underneath His feet. He is the ruler and reigner of all. Therefore, because Christ possesses those things, we possess them in Him. All the spiritual blessings, all the things that we would need, we have in Christ. He has already provided them for us. That's why Paul mentions three leadership, uh, three leaders in the church. He mentions Paul himself. He mentions Apollos. He mentions Cephas, who is Peter. Why does he mention these men? He says, why are you fighting over them? They already belong to you, all three of them. All their service, all their wisdom, all the things that that they have received from Christ, you need to understand that that belongs to you, all of you. Stop fighting over them. All the, the, the gifts that God has given you through Christ that He has attained by His own death and resurrection also belong to us. We are sub-beneficiaries of what Christ has received from the Father because we are united in Him. So, for example, he says in chapter 3, For all things are yours, verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. These are are leaders, these are servants in the church that God has blessed and called to serve and their gifts 
Their gift of service is for you. You learn from Paul. You learn from Cephas. You learn from Apollos. You learn from all the writers of the New, Old, and New Testament. You learn from pastors and theologians throughout history that God has blessed the church with. They're yours to enjoy. You need to be discerning because they're fallible men outside of those who wrote the Bible. But you need to enjoy them and learn from them. God has given them to you to learn from. That their service is to God and the point of their worship is to serve Christ and be a blessing to you. But it's not just servants in the church. Look else what he says. He, he broadens the umbrella. He says the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Well, Christ owns the present. He owns the future. He's defeated death. He rose uh, victoriously from the dead, therefore demonstrating His power of life. And therefore, all those blessings are yours as well. So it's strange to think the world is mine. Well, from a humanistic, selfish, driven, possessive craving... The world is not yours. Your your neighbor's brand new Lexus is not yours. But the spiritual blessings that Christ provides are yours. And the reason we need to understand this is because it helps us live in contentment. It it, it takes us away from a a selfish craving of, of possessing earthly things when we are rich in Christ. When we have all that we need in Him. So that we no longer find satisfaction in earthly things that mean absolutely nothing. Listen, I'm thankful for a college education. I think college education is important. But in the end, what is that going to do for me? Nothing. In the end, it does nothing for me. You can bury me with my diploma and my college degrees and it doesn't do anything for my life. In the end, it's, it's pieces of paper and maybe a memory. But my relationship with Christ and all that He has attained and blessed me with carries with me throughout eternity. Everything that I have is because of Him. So whether life or death, all we have is Christ. Therefore, we rest in Him. So our boasting is in Him. Our strength is in Him. Our accomplishments are because of Him. This leads us to serve Him faithfully. This leads us to to, to, to dedicate our lives to accomplishing His purposes in this world instead of striving for human achievements that fade away. This leads us to be faithful in mission and faithful in prayer and faithful in learning and growing about Him. Knowing Him more. Having a deeper and and faithful relationship to Him more. So that at the end of the life, we don't have these possessions like the Egyptians where we bury ourselves with them. We just have a deeper love with Jesus. So that when we die and we face Him in eternity, we know Him. And we'll be satisfied in Him. And so we live in this world day by day, fighting idolatries or ideologies that are idolatries. 
fighting sinful flesh and temptations of our own desires, understanding that Christ wants us to rest in Him and boast in Him, to find our strength in Him. And finally, it helps us understand that because we are united in Christ and because we possess all that He has given, that we belong to each other. We belong to each other. And church, I cannot stress to you more, I'm learning this more and more in my own life, that individualism is going to kill the church in America. It's not going to kill the church, but it's going to kill the church in America if we don't start living as people who have been knitted together spiritually for all eternity. That's what God has done in us. You don't belong to yourself. We belong to each other. Your life decisions affect us. You know, when my kids leave and go away to college, their life decisions affect me. I have more money now. Do you understand? Because we are a family. I won't be spending the money that I spend on them now. Their decision will affect me. But we live in the church as if our decisions of each with each other don't affect one another, and they do. If a family falls away from gathering with the church, that should affect us. That should burden our hearts. When we see sin living and, 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 and residing in the midst of a family or an individual, that should burden our hearts. We don't just put our heads down and come to church and leave and just act like it doesn't happen. We are literally rotting Part appendages of our body is rotting away if we don't deal with sin among the body because we are so united and knit together. And so just as much as we need the Lord Jesus Christ, He reminds us that we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to get this, this to this chapter in like 10 years. He says, just as the body is one and many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. So, but God composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, there, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So as I close, church, let me encourage you to rest in Him. Boast in Him and all that He has accomplished. And by all means, let us be unified and rest with one another in Christ together. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the great work of Christ, our Savior and Lord. We thank You for His power and His might that is displayed for us in His vicarious death and resurrection. That He would so lovingly and powerfully give His life faithfully into the end so that we might be those recipients of the blessings of grace, those who escape the very wrath of God, It overwhelms us, God, and it humbles us. Thank you that he would do those things for us and that we would receive such a blessing from it. God, help us to live humble lives 
Help us to be aware of the dangers out there that are trying to twist and contort our theology and our belief of you and our love for you. God, give us strength to overcome. Help us to be faithful to the end, loving one another and loving Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Please stand with me.